Welcome to Sidebar, discussions with local, state, and national experts about protecting our most critical individual and civil rights. Co-hosts, Vadim's Jackie Gardina and Mitch Winnick. Welcome back to Sidebar. We are excited to have you join us once again as we continue to explore constitutional and civil rights. I want to thank all of you who have listened to the podcast and to welcome any of our new listeners. My name is Jackie Gardina. I am the Dean of the Colleges of Law with campuses in Ventura and Santa Barbara, and I'm here with my co-host, Mitch Winnick. Well, welcome to Dahlia Lithwick and to my co-host, Jackie Gardina. My name is Mitch Winnick, and I'm the Dean of Monterey College of Law. And like Jackie, we have multiple locations, so we are also at San Luis Obispo College of Law, Kern County College of Law, and Empire College of Law up in Santa Rosa. All right, welcome, and today we are speaking with Dahlia Lithwick, the senior legal correspondent at Slate and host of Amicus, Slate's award-winning bi-weekly podcast about the law. Her work has also appeared in the New York Times, Harper's Magazine, the Washington Post, the New Republic, and commentary, among other places. Lithwick won the 2013 National Magazine Award for her columns on the Affordable Care Act. She was inducted into the American Academy of Arts and Science in October 2018. Today, we're going to focus on Dahlia's latest accomplishment, her new book, Lady Justice, Women, the Law, and the Battle to Save America. Welcome to Sidebar, Dahlia. So happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So I get to start us off with our first question. So first, let me just say that reading your book was a breath of fresh air for me. It reminded me about why I chose to enter the legal profession. I do believe that the law as a lever for change in our society, and I do believe in the quest for a more perfect union. Uh, and it was heartening to read the stories of women who used the law to battle oppression in real time. And although the book is not shy about describing the limits to change and the backsliding that's occurring right now, at least for me, it also offered stories of hope. So your book is focused on attorneys in the Trump era, but you actually start your book with Pauli Murray, an attorney who died before Trump was even the celebrity apprentice. So why start a book about women in the 21st century with Pauli Murray? Well, first of all, thank you for that incredibly kind introduction. I really was trying to write a book that surfed that line between hope and worry. And in some sense, it's nice to be talking to you right now after the midterms, where I think we saw a lot of women and young people and people of color show up for the vision you just described of what the law has to be to have a sort of tolerant, pluralistic democracy. This would have been, I guess what I'm saying is a very different conversation if, um, you know, nobody showed up and cared. That said, I think I wrote the introduction about Pauli Murray after I'd written the rest of the book. It was a book about a whole bunch of women that I thought maybe weren't household names, but were people who were just sort of warriors and gladiators in the fight for equality and justice, particularly in dark times when those things feel, felt like they were in short supply. And then after writing all those chapters, like everybody else, I saw the biography, My Name is Polly Murray, by Betsy West and Julie Cohen. And I just became utterly obsessed with this legal 
icon that none of us have heard about. And as you said, Polly Murray is the person who, unbeknownst to Polly Murray, writes the brief that becomes Brown v. Board, the winning brief, unbeknownst right. to Polly Murray, writes some of the material that Ruth Bader Ginsburg incorporates into her early arguments about using the 14th Amendment for gender equality. So this is the person who, and by the way, Polly Murray didn't even find out that, I'm going to say there, because I think Polly Murray today would probably want to be identified as certainly gender nonconforming. At the time, there was no language for that. But the brief, the paper that Polly Murray writes at Howard Law School that people laughed at gets plucked out of a binder and used by Thurgood Marshall and the team at LDF to argue Brown. Nobody tells Polly Murray. Years later, Polly Murray finds out. And so I think this is such a great story for a bunch of reasons that weave into the themes of the book, which is we as lawyers sometimes get trapped in this idea that the person who gets famous is the one that matters, the person who gets credit is the one that matters, the person who advances in their career is the one that matters. And it seemed to me that democracy is not really well served by that vision of what attorneys can do, that attorneys actually can just do justice every single day and maybe not get throw pillows and mugs like RBG and maybe more like Polly Murray be almost all but forgotten by history, but still change the world. And then more urgently, it is clearly the way women have been doing work in this lane of justice because women weren't getting credit. They weren't getting to be senior partners. They weren't getting until RBG came along, you know, throw pillows and mugs. And so I think it it serves us as lawyers to really think about those two themes when kind of approaching the material in the book, which is this isn't about fame and notoriety. This isn't about, you know, who knows your name after you're gone. This is about doing the work that lawyers can do to bring about justice. And then more emphatically, that this is how women have been organizing around gender justice and racial justice and justice for LGBTQ populations and minority populations forever, because this is the only lane we had. And that I want to lift up those stories because I think they're really a credit to the practice of law. Dahlia, is it fair to say, and as you mentioned, we're, we're here after the midterms, so you started the book with Polly Murray. You ended the book with Stacey Abrams. Much of Polly Murray's work was not successful or recognized during her career. It, we now know it much later. Is it a fair leap to say that parallel with Stacey Abrams is maybe the same? Her work certainly isn't done either. I, I love that as a, a frame, Mitch, because I think that there was a really reflexive Stacey Abrams lost her race so this is all for nothing and what it elides is exactly the thing you just said which is Stacey Abrams has been doing years and years of organizing in Georgia in the trenches with other groups principally groups led by women of color to get out the vote to invest people who have no interest whatsoever in politics because politics and law have never served them to say to them, you know what, you are utterly rational and also utterly wrong if you opt out, 
and to get them not just to vote, like that's the easy thing, right? Vote once because I'm famous, I'm Stacey Abrams, but to get them to register other voters, to get them to vote next time, to get them to be a part of a machinery of democracy that is enduring, that's what Stacey Abrams was doing. And the idea, again, that the win-loss column after the midterms is who won their race so disserves the work of you know all of the groups that that um, Stacey Abrams both founded herself or aligned herself with that have transformed. I mean, certainly that won the Senate last time round in 2020, but have transformed not just Georgia but also the way we think about organizing and also transform the way we think about getting communities that have been written off to buy in to legal and democratic systems that have not necessarily showed up for them. And so I think this is the work of a lifetime. And I think that exactly what you just said about Polly Murray, you know, Stacey Abrams was offered like, do you want to be the Supreme Court nominee? Do you want to be the vice president? Like, what great job do you want? And Stacey Abrams was like, I want to go back to Georgia and keep doing the thing that I'm doing. And I just think, again, as a model of how we do justice, that is such a poignant and important story to tell. It's not about winning your race. It's about getting, you know, tens and thousands of people who had totally lost faith in democratic processes to say, oh, maybe, maybe I'll give this a chance and maybe I'll sell it to someone else. take a brief break to hear a word from our sponsors, and then we'll be back with our guest, Dahlia Lithwick. You ought to be a lawyer. How many times have you heard this from your relatives, family, or co-workers? So what's stopping you? San Luis Obispo College of Law offers on-site and hybrid online evening classes that provide you the option to continue working while attending law school. To learn more about their accredited degree programs or to apply for their next term, go to slowlaw.org. That's S-L-O-Law.org. Your community, your law school, your future. Sailor Legal Service has been on the California Central Coast since 1991, under the same ownership and with the same capable team. Sailor is a 100% woman-owned business. If you call Monday through Friday, 8 to 5, the same capable team will answer. You can communicate with the same person each time you contact Sailor. For your orders to subpoena records, on-site copying, process serving, and court services. SailorLegal.com. S-A-Y-L-E-R Legal.com. Is your skill level in desktop software inhibiting productivity as a current or future legal professional? Would an elevated understanding of basic office technologies such as Microsoft Word, Excel, PowerPoint, and PDF help streamline your workday? The Legal Technology Assessment, LTA, by ProCertis is a benchmark assessment and a training platform for law students and all legal professionals. Our online application establishes fluency within the most widely used tools of the trade. ProCertis is reshaping online learning. Come check us out at www.procertis.com. Welcome back. We are speaking with Dahlia Lithwick, the author of Lady Justice, Women, the Law, and the Battle to Save America. You know, you make a point of saying 
I'm not going to focus on just courtroom heroics. In fact, we can't just focus on courtroom heroics. I think it was Gupta who said litigation is not power. So you make a point of discussing how change requires a broader effort, and you're quite explicit about it. You said no book about women in the law should confine itself to the rock star litigator and advocates and organizer. Is that something you knew and understood when you started writing the book and that was a theme or is that something you kind of discovered or it really came to light as you spoke to the women involved in these cases? Both. In some sense, it was, I mean, really, I think Vanita changed my mind, Vanita Gupta, who, you know, I very purposively put at the center of the book. I wanted the first chapters to be kind of sexy, law and order, courtroom battles, you know, people with yellow pads and like great shoes coming in with their, you know, binders. It seemed really a good on-ramp because we love those stories. But then I wanted to sort of plunk into the center of this uh, a pivot point into both organizing and structural reform. And I think Vanita was the person, and I think I said this in the book, who said to me at some point, you know, after the the failed attempt to put the citizenship question on the census, and Vanita had been one of the people when she was at the leadership conference who was organizing around that. And I remember writing this kind of grumpy piece saying, well, yeah, it lost in the court, but they're just going to turn around and, you know, do it again. And I remember her sort of brushing that back and saying, listen, Missy, you know, <laughs> you take your wins and also you organize because this motivated and galvanized many, many people around this issue of who is counted and who counts. And it reminded me that organizers think about wins and losses, kind of in the way, you know, that Mitch said about Stacey Abrams, which is this isn't this momentary, you know, thumbs up, thumbs down. You're building movements and you're building awareness and that's a win. And so I I did really change my view sort of very much from some of the conversations that I had with her and Nina Perales, who thinks also in terms of very, very long time horizons. But then I also think it was really informed by Dobbs, right? Because Dobbs comes down, as I have turned in the book, the last fact checks have happened, you know, the index is done. And then in like four or five days, I have to rewrite big chunks of it. And that question is at all, all of a sudden top of mind. Like we just suffered a massive catastrophic loss delivered to us by the very legal system that we have all dedicated our lives to. So how do I think about that? And, and, and I think that one of the lessons as I sort of reoriented myself around the book this summer and also the rollout of the book was what do you do with this really complicated problem of you can win lawsuits and win lawsuits and win lawsuits and lose democracy. Yeah, and I think your point about what Dobbs brought to mind right after the case came out and I did presentations to students at the school because it was at top of their mind, the one question that came up over and over and over again was, what can we do? And it was a 50-year kind of struggle on the other side to get to Dobbs, and it's going to be a similar kind of very long, organized struggle to get us back to an equilibrium. So I think that is such an important point because we do pay attention to the flash of the win rather than all the work that goes in to getting to that point. 
Yeah, and also here's the silver lining because I have to like claw a silver lining out of Dobbs, but I think there is a silver lining, which is, you know, there's that sort of uh, slightly, I don't know, fatuous line that Justice Alito offers in Dobbs where he's like, you know, women are not without power. If you don't like it, go vote. And I sort of feel like the midterms was us making good on that, you know? Like, I think it matters that you're experience post-Dobbs was very much mine and the one that, you know, I was experiencing even being on TV all, you know, week, which is everybody saying, how could this have possibly happened? Like, how can a position that is such a fringe position that is also not just fringe, but requires, you know, overturning doctrine without any solicitude for reliance interests and the other, you know, ways we think about precedent, how can that have just prevailed? And the answer to that isn't a legal question. That's a democracy question, right? And so if the silver lining of Dobbs is we got to a place of like profound and I would say almost violent minority rule on women's rights because of gerrymandered red states, because of vote suppression, because of, you know, a malapportioned Senate that does not reflect the way people vote or think because of the Electoral College. If every one of those things is suddenly like, huh, that's in play, that's how it happened, that a court that absolutely you know, disregarded precedent for the first time to turn, not not to confer more rights, but to take away rights. And the explanations for that are structural, as you said. And so if, in fact, I, I've been mulling these five ballot initiatives post-Dobbs, all of which, including in Kentucky, right, all of which end up protecting abortion rights. And all I can think is if you have a pure democracy, to the extent that a ballot initiative reflects that, you are going to have these outcomes. And so if what this means is that folks are looking around and saying, okay, well, minority rule feels kind of bad <laughs> when it's taking away your rights. So let me ask you about this process question because we're hearing you, not at the end of a journey, but at an end of an awareness. You give this a lot of thought. You were there in the court, watching the court, reporting the court. You talk about the role of being inside versus outside and the activities that are necessary. You chose, after watching the Kavanaugh appointment hearings, to go from inside to outside. Walk us back, because many of us are still back there. We haven't come to this awareness yet that you've been able to focus on. Something changed. The structure of the court changed. We'll talk about restructuring in a, in a minute, but that triggered your belief that you had to do something different. You couldn't protect the normalization. And you've now done something different, and you now described what your awareness is. Walk us back through that, if you would. The sort of answer that I'm ashamed to offer, but is the, the true answer is... A lot of what has changed for me is spending the last few years listening to Michelle Goodwin and listening to Dorothy Roberts and listening to Peggy Cooper Davis and listening to black women who've been saying for years, you have a lot of magical thinking bound up, not just in the court, not just in the rule of law, but bound up in Roe. 
If you think that Roe was this magical unicorn silver bullet that gave women the right to abortion throughout America, you have never been a person of color in Tennessee or in Mississippi or in Alabama trying to terminate a pregnancy, right? So I think part of this is, and this is, again, the same reason law schools don't teach Polly Murray, we're just not doing a really great job of teaching that we learn these cases and then we think, oh, this is sorted, right? Like everybody can vote now. Well, no, Carol Anderson has taught me, (laughs) if you are black voting in Atlanta, where they have closed polling stations and you have to stand in line for many hours, like that can be a really ephemeral right. And so I think part of, and, and this is a much longer, more complicated question about how we teach students, but part of the mistake was we have this sort of like very binary on off, and then everyone got the right to abortion. And we forget to teach the Hyde Amendment. And we forget to teach about how race and poverty, every single piece of that inflects whether, in fact, you did have a right to abortion. So I think maybe what I'm saying is that a lot of the magical thinking around the courts and the law come from a place of like deep privilege and unawareness of how this plays out on the ground. And I've really spent the last year learning how much I didn't know about whether Roe is in fact operative after Casey, whether Roe was operative after Hyde. And so that's a part of it. And I think that's really bound up with my answer about the court itself, which is all of us come up through law school being taught that basically it's balls and strikes. Basically, these are neutral umpires. These are people who are just nine fungible brains in vats just doing the work of triangulating against the Constitution in this pristine way. And we need to believe that, right? Because otherwise, we couldn't get through law school. I mean, I don't know how you teach law students if you don't believe some version of that story. And a lot of that has to be similarly unlearned. You really have to read... Adam Cohen talking about how the court has throughout history been a revanchist, super conservative, backward looking taker away of rights. And we're in love with like 12 minutes when the court was doing the opposite, but that's not the story of how the Supreme Court has worked. And so I guess maybe this goes back to the Polly Murray thing too, which is there's too much magical thinking and there is too much black and white thinking. And I, it's not that I like, I emphatically reject the critique that I just don't like the Dobbs decision, or I just didn't like Bruin. And this is about outcomes. This is what you're describing as an awakening is really a deep system-wide understanding that the electoral college is a product of racism and that the state, the Senate is a product of racism, that so many of the bargains of the founding are products of how do you promote minority rule? How do you give certain entities more power than others? And that we still live in thrall to that. And so the awakening is, okay, now we have to decide. Like this system in many ways is working as it was intended to work. Do we just say, I give up, and now I don't believe in the rule of law, or do we do what Justice Marshall did, which is, I'm going to work within the system with all its limitations and all the way that it like wreaks violence upon my very body and my very soul and my very dignity, 
And to still say, and this is where Jackie started, I think the law can be an engine for something much better. And so I think that awakening you're describing is sort of throwing off some of the useless mythology, but then kind of cloaking yourself in the actual power and the actual potential. And that's where I'm sitting right now, which is a really different place from where I sat when I graduated from law school. We do have the opportunity to infect or influence aspiring attorneys in what you are describing. So, and I think both Mitch and I, both our schools represent the diversity of California. So we have a very diverse population, people who have been on the outside looking in, quite literally in some cases, DACA students and others whose parents came over for them to have a better life. And they describe in great detail the struggles they've had with the legal system and immigration, et cetera. Let me just say, Jackie, what we say is our students aren't the children of farm workers. We have children who were farm workers as they grew up. So it's, it's that, that type of an awareness of those needs. I think this is a great place to end part one of our conversation with Dahlia Lithwick, the author of Lady Justice, Women, the Law, and the Battle to Save America. I hope you will immediately join us for part two. Our program today is produced by David Eakin, who also composed and performed all of our music. Also, thank you to Gogo Zoger, who is our social media director managing our gateway to our growing podcast listener community. The future of law is protecting personal information online. It's ensuring patients' rights are protected. It's knowing how to manage your own business. At the Colleges of Law, you'll find programs built for change to address whatever the future of the legal industry might bring. The Colleges of Law, built for change, built for you. Find your future at collegesoflaw.edu. Welcome to the future of legal intelligence. Trellis, a state trial court research and analytics solution. Trellis offers state trial court records for legal research with analysis on judges, opposing counsel, verdicts, motions, dockets, and legal issues. Use Trellis to discover how judges have ruled on similar motions or to gain insight into opposing counsel, prospects, and clients. To learn more or to request a Trellis demo, reach out to Mike Suarez at mike@trellis.law, or visit our website, trellis.law. For more information about Jackie Mitch and Sidebar, go to sidebarmedia.org. California accredited law schools, including the Colleges of Law and Monterey College of Law, provide affordable, quality legal education in evening online and on-site classes. Our law school graduates qualify to sit for the California bar exam and upon passing are licensed as California attorneys. For more information about attending a California accredited law school near you, go to CALawSchools.org.
That's calawschools.org.